Welcome back to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast, a show that's by sports PTs and for sports PT professionals. We're here to accelerate growth in your sports PT career while giving you the tools to provide your athletes with game-changing results. Here's your host, sports physical therapist and practice owner, Dr. Yoni Rosenblatt. want to welcome Kyle Kimbrell. Welcome to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. Kyle, super excited to have you on. First of all, tell me that I pronounce your last name correctly. You, you actually nailed it, man. Um, Hell yes. And it's, it's funny because I, over, the, over time, I've kind of defaulted on occasion to just say Kimbrell because yeah. it's a little bit easier to see that. And, it, and it's a little bit easier to enunciate. And so just depending on circumstance, I'll say that because otherwise people go, is he mumbling? I don't know. You know? So, so yeah, you yeah, absolutely nailed it. As a guy named Yoni, I'm sensitive to that. Well, so. I was about to ask. Like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know if it was Yoni or Yoni. I was like, it's got to be one of the two. But Yeah. Um, Baltimore O, Yoni. So, Yoni. I, yeah, there you go. Um, so, now you can't screw it up. So, Kyle, Love you it. have done unbelievable things with the blood flow restriction front on the blood flow restriction front. Um, I'm excited to have you on to really educate us on that. So why don't you yeah. start by giving us some background on how the hell you got to where you are today and what today looks like for you. Sure. Yeah. Uh, today, you know, it looks like uh, me sitting at home uh, <laughs> answering a lot of clinical questions for people. Um and helping to produce content for the Owens Recovery Science brand, if you will. Uh, I manage their social media, so like yesterday, you know, it's like tweet this or what. Um, and then we have a few different little groups that we try to kind of engage with, um, so answering questions in those different platforms. Um, and, and I got here because I was a, a clinician for... Um, well, let's see. I I had been a, a PT practicing in a traditional kind of outpatient setting for about twelve to thirteen years before I met Johnny. Just uh, treating twelve years of just treating. Yeah, man, grinding it. Yeah, hell yeah. Uh, and and yeah. how busy was that clinic? When you say standard, um, what's that sound? What is we, that? So when I started there, we were one every or excuse me, three every hour, so on like 20-minute increments. And then we, and th- we were partly that way because, and we would double book, um, you know, as needed. Uh, we were partly that way because the clinic was so small, and so when we expanded, we had more space, um, and so we could hire more people, and we could spread people out. So then we went to one every half hour, evals every hour, and that flowed. That flowed great. You know, it, funny enough, like there were times where, I actually felt like the care was maybe even better in that little tiny spot, seeing three an hour, but you could always see everything. So you kind of had eyes on and, and it was easy enough to engage. So there was that. But yeah, we did, I did that for a long time, took students. I'm a credential clinical instructor. So did all that. And that was kind of my, my foray into teaching. And then when I met Johnny Owens, um, he came out to our clinic to, to teach all of us BFR back in late 2015 so we were we were actually the first public course that he did um and got to know him that way started doing like little in services for him with various different sports teams around the los angeles area where i'm located um and then talking to different clinics and physician groups and whatnot about the technique and just and then just kind of implementing it clinically um Mm -hmm. in our in our clinic and that just kind of snowballed to where I started teaching for Johnny. Um, so the last three years of my time in clinic, I actually spent all my vacation to travel <laughs> to go teach to people how to do this BFR thing. Uh, and then, thank God, Johnny goes, hey, man, you know, I think probably we could just bring you on and just kind of have you do this if you were interested in maybe getting out of the clinic. And I said, you know, uh, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Um, and it's been great, you know, and I miss the, the interaction with patients. I miss seeing people get better. But I'm, I still am engaged clinically because I'm constantly answering questions for people and trying to help them implement this BFR thing better. Um, yeah. 
and speaking at conferences, teaching still, that kind of thing. So yeah, yeah, and, and it's working. Me. I mean, man, the the gospel is is really spreading. It's really the, I love it. Say, right? gospel. I love it. BFR gospel. <laughs> I've said that a few times. It just cracks me up. You know, spreading the gospel in BFR. Yeah, like it's it. it's it's really awesome. And so, um, it was it was brought to my attention. I want to say like right around 2015, also maybe maybe yeah. 2016, when I had a clinician uh, working at our clinic and saying like we got to do this BFR thing. I'm like, what the hell is that? You know, I don't know what that is. So obviously we've come a long way from that, but let's kind of define our terms. Tell me what blood flow restriction means to Kyle Kimbrell. It means adding some type of restrictive device on a proximal limb. Uh, and And I say it that way because it's been done in a lot of different manners. Um, I, I am, of course, bias towards how we teach it, which is to actually use like a, a high-grade tourniquet system that's validated, that's reliable, um, and measuring the pressure at which to use. So that pressure is essentially the point, uh, I like to call it like the one rep max of the vascular system, because it's kind of what it is. You know, you don't give somebody a resistance exercise without dosing that exercise in some way which means individualizing it and the absolute best way to do that is a one rep max Um, so we always before we ever do bfr we have someone lie down we apply this cuff to their limb on the device we use the delphi device we just push a button and it has technology that's been validated against duplex ultrasound to where it can sense when blood flow is completely shut off into the limb and that gives us this one rep max number, if you will, or what, or what is typically called 100% limb occlusion pressure. Then we apply pressure to that limb based off of that maximal number. So typically in the lower extremity, we use a 60 to 80% range. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we, we, we give that range because it, it's been, a lot of different pressures have been used within the literature. Um, we really kind of think that as we're seeing more and more come out, the way things are shaken down is there's kind of like this load pressure seesaw where if the load that you're using with an individual is really light and you still want BFR to really be as effective as it can be, then you might need to use a little bit higher pressure. So maybe up closer to that 80, 80% range. But as you're able to start kind of progressing load, then it looks like maybe you can drift that pressure down into that 60 to maybe even a 50% range. That's lower extremity. Upper extremity, um, we use a pressure range of 40 to 50%. It looks like 40% is kind of the lowest you can go in terms of BFR pressure um, and it really accomplishing what it needs to accomplish, which is basically causing you to fatigue much faster than you typically would with the traditional exercise. And so that's really the win on the rehab side of things. We like from a physiology perspective, we know that in order to get muscle to get bigger and to enhance its ability to produce force, we have to make it very tired. We kind of have to push it to its limit, which is it's adaptation in general, no matter what we're talking about, whether it's we're learning something or we're trying to get the human body to respond in a certain way. You have to push a limit at some point, and that's basically what we do with resistance exercises. We create a bunch of fatigue. Um, and so if we can create that fatigue with a lighter weight, with BFR and the use of this cuff, um, and maybe not having to do as many reps either, then that's a pretty big win for those folks that are in pain that might not be able to lift a heavy weight. Um, and, and in some cases, we're even just like pedaling a bicycle with cuffs on either leg or walking on a treadmill. And, and, you know, if somebody's pretty low level, even that stimulus might be enough to get them a little bit of muscle, certainly improve their endurance, but maybe even improve like their strength at some level as well. So um, there's kind of a range of ways that we use it, but the, the basic principle is apply a cuff, um, individualize that pressure, individualize whatever exercise stimulus you're giving. And what you'll accomplish is this person's going to get tired way faster than they normally would. And, and that's a pretty big win um, in a lot of different yeah. ways, but definitely in rehab. Yeah, I love that. So, so I usually sum it up when, I, when I'm pitching this to patients because it does sound terrifying, especially post-op day one, and we'll get into that, is this is going to make 
number one, it's pretty uncomfortable. But number two is it's going to make things that are normally very easy, very difficult. Your body is going to respond by laying down more muscle tissue and you're going to grow muscles bigger and faster. And that's going to get you to where you want to go quicker. And then it's like, okay, let's hit the gym. How do I do with that? I think that's great. That makes sense? Know? Okay, great. Absolutely, Good. yeah. I have not Unless you're working with an engineer, thing. and then you got to kind of go a deeper yeah, dive. Yeah. <laughs> try not to do that. So, um, for, for, for many reasons, I try not to do that. Okay, so, but you, you did say a lot of interesting things there, which, because yeah. um, you talked about your system. And so, when this yeah. employee came to me and said, we got to get this BFR machine, I'm like, okay, sounds cool. How much? Yeah. And then he told me how much it costs. And I'm like, dude, that's... Yeah more than the car I'm driving right now. So I think that first system was six grand, something like that. Yeah. Do I need yeah. to use that computer? What is, does it matter what brand BFR I use? Uh, does it matter? Yes, yes and no. Yes and no. Okay. I, I mean, you know, if you look at the literature, the, the early papers um, were done... When the when the the BFR literature was really starting to expand, um, that device was a Katsu device, mm-hmm. which is um, a, still a pretty expensive device in the grand yep. scheme of things. Um, but it's it's built a bit differently, so it's not a surgical tourniquet. In fact, they have on their website, you know, not for clinical use, basically. So it doesn't meet FDA, you know, regulations or whatnot, that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> but then there are other devices out there um some of these studies have used knee wraps which i you know the people that have even pioneered that work have said do not use this clinically um so i I think if there's anything i really discourage it's the use of like rogue bands or knee wraps or that sort of thing because you have no way of controlling Mm -hmm. the pressure that you're giving to the limb and that's been shown kind of time and time and time again um then there are there are other devices um that have no way of individualizing pressure that are out there. Um, and those devices are basically built to not ever fully occlude, no matter how much pressure you put in them. Mm-hmm. The, problem, the problem with that is you, you just have no way of really providing the exact same stimulus to everybody that comes through your space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I see that as a real problem. I mean, last I checked, we get evidence-based pounded into our head and I'm like well if I can't determine how much pressure needed then how am I really being objective in an evidence base I don't I I have a problem with that um, but that doesn't mean that those devices can't at some level provide enough of a restriction pressure to accomplish BFR it's just you have no way of knowing like what that number is yeah, um, as proportion to their occlusion yeah, so you right. just, it's kind of a guessing game, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that someone that's really skilled with exercise, they could probably figure that out. And they could figure out how to figure it out pretty fast. Um, if you're treating a patient every half hour, um, I need to be able to, like, move and, yep. and be, you know, so that, that doesn't work for me. Um, then there are other devices that um, can create full occlusion, and you typically are measuring them with a handheld Doppler. Mm-hmm. Um, so the only limitation there is that um, some of those devices don't have um, different size cuffs. They don't have a, a decent range. And so there's potential for maybe the cuff to kind of overlap, which could introduce a, a pressure gradient. It could cause the cuff to kind of slip when you're moving, that kind of thing. That's, that's definitely something that I've seen happen. Um, and it introduces a little bit of human error anytime you're having to measure and listen and, and pump up. There's going to be there's going to be some human error there versus a system that's computerized and validated. You know, basically against two ways. So when I say duplex ultrasound, that means the Delphi device is validated against not only an auditory sound but a visual stimulus as well. So they kind of confirmed on both ways that okay, this is accurate. Um, yeah. So, and that's the one that I, that I really like. That's the one that I've used my whole career. The reason I like it is because if something goes wrong, I can defend every decision I made with that device. 
Um, you know, it's it's made by a tourniquet manufacturer that's been that basically manuf- has all the patents on all the technology that's used in all the surgical grade tourniquets for Which the last is, forty guess, years. And I guess you know that's why it's a goddamn fortune, right? It, well, so it's funny you say that because. I get the price question all the time, like, why the hell yeah. is it so expensive? And I'm like, well, look at it this way, you know, like, we all kind of understand the drug market and how drugs are developed, um, but they're required to do that, right? Like, mm-hmm. the, they have to put in all that R&D, and then they have to make up their profits on the back end. The medical device market isn't regulated that way. And so what's happening is you have a lot of these companies that have seen this BFR thing become very popular. They've yep. rushed to market, and they've not done their R&D. They've not done their work. And, and in fact, in some cases, there have been patent infringements already. Um, and essentially, the consumer is paying for their R&D. And so what you see now is like new device every year or so, and there's small little tweaks. And weirdly enough, they all start kind of looking more and more like, like a Delphi system. Um, but I, I heard this funny thing uh, on that topic the other day and because it was somebody saying like, if you're buying a product and somebody's telling you, oh, they can do it, they can do it cheaper, they can do it cheaper, they can do it better, da, da. that means you're the product, not what they're selling is. You're the product. And I went, oh, this is exactly, yeah. from my perspective, the BFR market. We have a product that's been developed and you know, been shown to do all this stuff. And there's this other market where all these physical therapists and athletic trainers and strength coaches are, they're the product now. And these companies are just kind of learning yeah. off of them. So, yeah, yeah that's why well, it's so expensive. It's just been around. I mean, you know. listen, I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of that R&D and the, the back investment to get it to where it is. Anecdotally speaking, it, I refer to it as the real BFR. I have it in a few of the clinics um, <laughs> and I have the handheld one. It is a, it's a different ballgame. I mean, it, compared yeah. to what you feel, I love its ability to, to really squeeze down during rest and kind of relax a little bit during work. Obviously, you don't get that with the handheld stuff. Um, right. and, and I love the width of the cuff, which, which mm-hmm. I know there was a bunch of literature coming out on how important that is, not just to yeah. hold it in place, but an actual occlusion. And Delphi freaking nailed that. It's comfortable. It stays there. Um, it really does its job. So we're still using the same original that, that I dumped all that money into. And yeah. what, what I would love is, let's get, is Johnny behind you? If we can get higher reimbursements... <laughs> For this I know, thing. dude. Dude, yeah. make that happen, Kyle. We are. That is um, it's certainly an ultimate goal. Um, it's tricky. It's really tricky. No kidding. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, if you think about like, like, name me another profession in the United States economy yeah. that has not seen an increase in what it has paid for its services in the last 30, 40 years. You're going to name physical exist. therapy. I don't know that you're going to name another. <laughs> yeah. It, listen, it doesn't exist except for PT. Yeah. And what's, what's crazy is I have this conversation all the time because when I sit down and do reviews or we're talking comp structure, yeah. the, the PT, and I, I'm a PT, like I want to get paid more. Like my life costs right. more today than it did yesterday, but right. it's really hard when Blue Cross just laughs at us. Um, yeah. So if Owens could fix that, I'm happy to invest in Owens. Dude. If we could fix that, um, there'd be a lot of things that would get a lot better for a lot of us. <laughs> so true. By the way, our uh, patients included. And yeah, you're, 100%. You're, yeah, 100%. you're absolutely right about that. I think that's an entire other uh, podcast to talk about. Talk to me about yeah. Yeah. rep scheme when you're using sure. your BFR. And it's been, when you talk about being ingrained in our brains, it's 30, 15 times 3, right? Yeah. Where'd yeah. that come from? Do you still live on that and die by that? And, and why do we need to keep doing it? Yeah, so um, it kind of comes from studies where they have said, all right, we're going to do as many reps as we can until we can't do any more. And then we're going to let you rest a little while and you're going to repeat that. Um, and, and so what ended up kind of shaking out over time is seeing that if you get like an 80% pressure and a 20% load... And you have a group of people do four sets to failure, then they end up doing about 75 repetitions. Now, the split looks a little different, probably more like, hey, we did 40 reps 
in that first set, and then maybe it shrunk down to 13 and maybe 10. And, but in total, it was 75. So over time, we just kind of saw people breaking it down 30, 15, 15, 15. Isn't that weird? Because you're, you know, you're a CSCS guy or you're a strength guy. It, yeah. Like we don't use that in when we're imparting a strength and conditioning protocol where we say, right. here's your number of reps. Uh, everyone's going to do this. Um, we really vary it depending upon our goals. So yeah. talk to me how that fits together. Yeah. I mean, in, in the end, my goal is kind of that last set for the person to almost not be able to finish. Yeah. Um, and, and over time, we'll get to where the last two sets typically they can't finish. So I'm, you know, my goal is really an effort goal with this intervention, um, getting that person to what we would probably call like momentary muscular failure. Um, <clears throat> it definitely looks a little bit different than some sort of a strength program yeah. though. You know, it looks, looks totally different there. Um, and, and that's, you know, I think maybe that's where sometimes you'll get pushback from the strength and conditioning community a little bit. Um, but then of course you put a cuff, a couple cuffs on their, their and they do 50 right? legs and you ask them to squat and they go, yeah. okay, I get it now, you know, yeah. because all of a sudden it feels like they've got, you know, however much weight on their back. So, but is it yeah. worth, is it worth, um, kind of thinking about your goal i'm always preaching pick a goal for the session right you can't accomplish everything in a given session if your goal yeah. is strength for that session strength we're not talking activation we're not talking endurance like do you pick that applicable rep range use lop appropriately use increased uh resistance appropriately and you're gonna live in that given rep range as opposed to 75 reps which depending upon your rest break that sounds to me more endurance yeah, um, but the thing with endurance is you typically are kind of relying on kind of that aerobic system and your your type 1 fibers. And really, when we put this cuff on you, we limit your ability to use those pathways to produce sure. energy to create muscle contraction. So, you know, the thought is that first 30, we kind of run you out of oxygen in the muscle. And now you start having to use your stored sugars, your lactate, and that kind of thing to produce ATP. Um, mm -hmm. So the thought is that we get you into some of these type 2 fibers by kind of front-loading everything with like a 30-rep like a 30, a 30 rep scheme. If, now, if my goal for a session, kind of going back to the, that original part, is strength, um, BFR is probably not going to be my first. It's not going to be my first choice, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to choose to lift someone heavy um, mm -hmm. because I think that increasing strength is multifactorial. It's not just about force production, right? Um, especially if we're talking about a multi-joint movement, there's some improvements in efficiency that need to also occur in order for somebody to get "quote unquote" stronger. Um, so you know, I. If I'm trying to increase somebody's strength with BFR, um, I'm definitely going to be, I might not, I'm gonna probably use that 30, 15, 15 as a framework, as like a goal, but I'm gonna choose my loads and my pressures so that they're definitely failing early in that second set of 15 and in that third mm -hmm. set of 15. So I'm really gonna, push my limits in terms of like how can I load this right so you know I might look at more like a 40% load and a 60% pressure in that scenario yeah. right um, and if that's the case they're probably like <laughs> you know 10 12 reps in that second set and I'm fine with that because I got the effort piece in there you know yeah yeah and okay so so that that speaks really well to this 30 15 15 15 is a guide, but you just sounded yeah. like a really good strength coach when you explained that is depending upon what you want your outcome to be, you're going to change the stimuli. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. It's not like a, a protocol that you can just like plug and play, um, which I know it's nice to have those when you can, but I, that's just not really what we do in general. Um, yeah. We, you know, we're always kind of tinkering and finding what's best. So. 
love that. I, I feel like the, yeah. the best ones do. So absolutely, um, yeah. I appreciate you kind of working through that. Tell me, um, well, let's talk difference between lower extremity, upper extremity. Okay. Do you feel that it, the the cuff concept is as effective upper extremity as it is lower extremity? I think it kind of depends on um, what muscle group you're working and what what movement you're working. I think the in, in the physical therapy world, you know, we end up really treating a lot of shoulder in the upper extremity, um, mm-hmm. and then some elbow and some wrist hand. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think you know from that perspective, um, you know, maybe BFR is probably a little bit more. Um, um, valuable in the lower extremity just because um, it can address the vast majority of the things that we see it when you get start getting into the shoulder it's it's tougher with exercise now there's some data recently showing like if you get that 50 percent pressure that actually um, you can increase muscle recruitment proximal to the cuff um, but I, but I find at least from our practice, I was always fighting range of motion for people. And so I was like, man, I can't, <laughs> like I can put this cuff on them, but they're not able to work their muscle through a large enough range that um, it really even matters, you know? Yeah. So we, we kind of avoided that. Um, but I didn't avoid it. We just, just didn't see us using it as quickly and as easily as we would um, in, the, in the lower extremity. Um, but for things like tennis elbow or, like a golfer's elbow, um, those things, I mean, we're able to see really great pain reductions um, pretty quickly. So that's been, for me, the, the, the win um, that I see in those two populations is that ability to really substantially impact their pain and see that change within a visit, two visit, three visits. Um, so on those fronts, I see it really kind of providing a lot of help. Um, and where we haven't really seen things go is kind of like wrist hand. You know, there's very little work um, on that out there. But think about like how hard is it to actually fatigue the intrinsics of the hand or, or some of those. Like it's like virtually impossible, you know. Um, but with the addition of BFR, you know, you can take like your little manuals and things like that that you might do for say a thrower um, or maybe somebody after like carpal tunnel. Um, and you can actually work those muscles hard, which you, you really pretty much can't very hard do to. Yeah. Um, without BFR. So no, I've seen that. I've seen that work beautifully. I think that that's a great point. I've also seen it really well in the plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendinopathy yeah. stuff where we're like, you know, how many towel crunches can you do before Jeez, a patient yeah. looks up at you? And they're like, what am I doing? Right. Yeah. So yeah. actually making that hard and challenging. And like you said, recruitment wise has, I've definitely seen benefit, yeah. um, Walk me through physiologically what you think is happening um, to have the effects proximal to the cuff. Well, I mean, in a multi-joint scenario, uh, what we really think is happening more than anything is you are fatiguing those muscles that are distal to the cuff that act as primary movers. And then that's just kind of forcing you to use the muscles above the cuff more than you typically would with that movement and at least kind of maintain the quality of the movement that you're that you're after if we start talking muscles that solely lie above the cuff like say rotator cuff muscles uh, that's a harder one to explain (laughs) Um, it's really hard to explain and so you know i don't know um because you've done it i mean when when you do like say external rotation with bfr your hand still kind of starts to fatigue a little bit. So, you know, I don't know if there's something there with just the neuro- neurologically, um, the fatigue there is kind of forcing you to re- feel fatigue proximally, maybe, maybe. Um, the, the overriding thought that people always kind of point to is they feel like that cuff kind of acts like a funnel and you get some sort of like a retrograde sort of restriction of blood flow. So as long as you're kind of close to the cuff, but still proximal, you still might be getting some blood flow restriction, um, even though, you know, like from a straight plumbing perspective, it wouldn't make any sense. Yeah, um, yeah. That, that's what people point to the most. Um, 
No one, funny enough, has actually studied that. Dude, let's um, do that. I want to know right? that. I want to be able to put a cuff on a pitcher and say, this is going to help your rotator cuff tendinopathy. Right. And he, here's how I know that. Can exactly. I answer that today? Or not? I don't think we can answer it today. <laughs> um, but there is, a, there is a, um, actually a study just published out of Houston Methodist on oh. throwers. So it was done on oh, the rice right. baseball pitchers. Um, now, they weren't treating them clinically. But they were studying, they looked at EMG, they looked at fastball velocity, they looked at throwing mechanics, and they looked at spin rate. And everything in the BFR group was really positive um, and significantly different. Now, they didn't let them publish all of the results. There were some reasons they didn't publish the velocity and the spin rate. Um, but mechanically, they actually looked better, those groups, because it, presumably they had less fatigue, Less pain in I'm the arm. I'm dying to know the spin rate. Those piece. are the right. That's yeah, fascinating. I'll see if I can get it for you, man. Uh, I don't know if I don't. Yeah, they didn't publish it, but yeah. I mean, it was small. It was I don't small. care. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and exactly. the Methodist um, produces some awesome PTs. We employ some of them who are just yeah. absolute studs, specifically baseball based. So, yeah, um, that would be super interesting uh i love i love hearing that um just tell me how i can be a piece of that research that is awesome yeah um tell me you gotta get a multi-site thing going man that'd be awesome i'm working i'm working on it i'm working all right um okay so tell me tell me the two biggest mistakes you see pts make using your bfr um just throwing the cuff on and pretending it's like jesus's cloak is number one Okay. There you go. And by like, Jesus, just explain it for the, the Jews. Yeah, Jesus' so, cloak is a... Jesus' cloak is <laughs> kind of a metaphor for... Oh, man, I'm forgetting, but there was a guy on a road, and basically, you know, through his faith, he's like, if I could just touch his cloak, I'll be healed. And he touched his cloak like and he's healed. And so it's not... This is not something where... And I, and I, I say that in all seriousness. I see it used in this manner a lot, where... Basically, a, a clinician, I quotation marks, uh, <laughs> um, has, has put this cuff on an individual and they're just kind of doing something that clearly isn't um, working on improving the muscle quality, quantity, force production of a muscle. It's just very obvious from either the movement, the exercise has been chosen, the effort that the person's putting forth. Yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah. Um, Hold on. I, let me let me just shoot in there. Save, yeah. save that second one for a heartbeat. I would say, you know what else we as therapists or clinicians and air quotes do a lot? Like the needling idea, right? Like, well, uh -huh. I'll just needle it and you're going to be healed. Well, like yeah. you got to figure out when to apply these tools. That's why I love this Absolutely. conversation. Like what's the yeah. best way to apply BFR? I could totally see it being Jesus's cloak. Like I always say, Kyle, yeah. it sounds like Jesus's cloak. What's the second... <laughs> The things you've taught me. Um, what's the second? What is the second mistake that you see them making? Awesome. Uh, I I think it's probably more the claims that people will make for BFR. Mm -hmm. um, like they'll claim it it heals bone faster. Or they'll claim it heals tendon faster. I don't get me wrong. There's evidence to suggest that we're really doing some positive things for those tissues, but. I think that we need to be a lot more careful with what we claim for things. Like we know BFR will increase muscle size, increase muscle force production if you dose it properly and consistently over a set amount of weeks. Um, we, we do not know if it accelerates tendon healing, like if a diseased tendon um, any better than just loading that tendon up does. We don't, we don't know that information. I'm not, I'm not saying it can't. I'm not saying you shouldn't use it for tendon, but I'm just saying, like, we got to pump the brakes on some of the stuff that we claim it for it. Mm -hmm. But we definitely don't know about bone. Um, we, I, again, Methodist, they're, they're the only group that has published a paper that is a longitudinal trial and actually looked at bone density and saw it really doing some positive things for bone, but that was not in a fracture scenario. That was in an ACL reconstruction hmm. scenario. Um, so yes, 
BFR is definitely doing things that are positive for muscle. Generally, if you do things that are positive for muscle, you're doing things that are positive for bone. But actually telling people that, hey, it's going to, or a physician referral or whatever, hey, this is going to do this or that for, for tendon or bone, it's just you're stepping out of lane, you know? Um, I, you need to look at this as more of a way to address a skeletal muscle issue that the person in front of you may have. Um, and that's going to be a very positive thing for those tissues as well. But let's just kind of stop there, you know, yeah. um, until we have good evidence to, to support that. I think we really need to be careful about what we claim for it. Yeah. Now, can you back your way into those claims by saying, I'm going to make that muscle bigger, stronger, or at the very least, I'm going to prevent it from atrophying the way it would sans cuff. And by way of doing that, you're going to keep some type of load through the bone or we're not even there. Yeah. I think it's fair to, to say something like that. Um, and, and I think it's fair to say, look at all, all indications are we're doing really positive things. Mm-hmm. Um, for bone and keeping it healthy smart yeah i think that's fair but just like just stop there it's okay like it doesn't have to again it doesn't need to be jesus's cloak i mean like we just we need to be better about under i i think because i get you know taking kind of a thirty thousand foot view a little bit um we get the question all the time about hey like i just got the question the other day hey kyle bfr work for hoffa's syndrome and i'm like Mm mm-hmm Hoffa's syndrome. I don't think I've ever, I don't even know what that is. And it's just like, it's a fat pad <laughs> irritation, which I'm like, I've never heard that term, but yeah, it's freaking medicine. Yeah. So we got to change the F and definitions and terms all the damn time. I can't keep yep. up. But, you know, people want to know, like, this diagnosis, that diagnosis will be a far work. And I'm like, ah, I don't know. I, mm-hmm. Tell me how you're going to use it. Tell me why you're going to use it. You know, tell me why you're concerned, you know, with this particular diagnosis, there a safety, safety profile issue. Like let's yeah. reason through that. But I, but I don't need, I don't need a randomized controlled trial to tell me when to use BFR. I need to know that BFR can impact skeletal muscle in a positive way. And here's how I have to program BFR in order to do that. That's all I need to freaking know yeah. to figure out if it's going to help the individual right in front of me. Um, I, I don't, you know, like, can it help ACL reconstruction rehab? Well, hell yeah. I, I, there's a lot of different targets there. Does yeah. it return yeah. to play faster? Ah, I don't know about yeah. that. You know? Yeah, I don't know about that either. But but you're, you're making a good point with the Hoffa's fat pad syndrome um, where it's like, use your, use your goddamn brains, right? Like, if yeah. you can tell me and you can look at these RCTs to know it's going to increase muscle size, well, is that going to help this pathology? Uh, if it is then great. If not, then no, Um, I would think, at least at this point, right? It's the same. It's very similar to the stuff I see on someone comes in with a frozen shoulder. They've been going to another PT and they show up at our place and they're like, you know, we've been doing all these rotator cuff strength stuff. I'm like, well, what? Like, why would that help the pathology or presentation that's in front of you that's not going to increase your range? Similar here, right? It's not going to increase range. So, But if your patient can benefit from increasing strength, it sounds like BFR would be a good use. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Thanks for getting me on. Yeah, thanks for getting me on that soapbox. I know, I love it. (laughs) I love soapboxes. (laughs) what, What claim can I make confidently about BFR? And like, because when you talk about those parameters, you said like, we know it'll increase uh, muscle size and strength. Well, what are the parameters I have to hit in order to confidently say it's going to make your muscle bigger? Yeah, um, I, th- I think you, you have to hit a 20% load. Like if we're just going to go straight from the literature, you've got to get somebody to that, that 20% load. Um, and they're going to need to probably, they're going to need to do... Um, if you're seeing them twice a week, two exercises for that muscle group using our 30, 15, 15 rep scheme. So like, say for example, it's a quad quad needs to get bigger, needs to get stronger. You need to hit a 20% load. And I would say you should do a long arc quad and some sort of a squat type movement twice a week. And you need to keep that up for six to eight weeks. And in that time, if you go back and you retest force production, you retest circumferential measurements, you should see increases in muscle size, muscle strength. Significantly uh, more than if they weren't using a cuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, now, I mean, of course, assuming that they, they can't just train traditionally. Yeah. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. If and that person could train traditionally, then I I wouldn't say that um, the changes that you're going to see are going to be greater than what you would get with training traditionally. Okay, gotcha. And then uh, I've heard you talking in the past about loading up the quad um, and the differences of the way the quad reacts with hip flexion versus extension. Yeah. Uh, you know, a- anything to, to really share with the audience on that? I, I think the – so that's a newer concept for me. Um, and it, it, I came around because I was working with a buddy of mine. I still work with him. Um, and I'm work, working with him after he had bilateral total knee. Um, now this guy, <laughs> he is the um, physical embodiment of Mister Clean. The you know the the you know so he's like six five, bald, got to turn sideways to get through a door because he's just like kind of an amateur bodybuilder. Um, has bilat? Yeah. How old? How old is he? Yeah. How old he's. Is he? I want to say he's about fifty six, somewhere in that range. Um, okay. You know, he's a deputy sheriff here locally, and just you know, great, great dude. Um, Bilat total knee, so his his legs don't look great. He called me up because he's having, you know, he's getting discharged from traditional PT, and he's like, dude, my quads are terrible. Um, I can, I'm, you know, it's not even easy to walk really, but my range of motion is good. And he wanted to know if I could help him, if BFR might help. And I was like, well, let me just, I'll come look at you. We'll, we'll see. So. Long story short, start working with him. One leg is going along great. The other leg is not. Um, and I listened to a podcast with Lynn Snyder-Mackler. She was talking about um, after ACL reconstruction, if they've harvested the patella tendon, sometimes the, the tendon actually stretches out a little bit. And in order to address that, to really get the quad going, you actually need to extend the hip so that you get the rectus femoris more involved, that you create some more passive tension throughout that complex. Um, and I'm listening to this and I'm going, this sounds a lot like my buddy. And I have not tried that. I had tried everything else under the sun. Like, I mean, from... You know, me pulling him into full extension and him just trying to control the knee coming down from shocking him with neuromuscular stem and BFR. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a therapist that turns his brain off. Like I'm like, I got to freaking figure out how to do this. And I was failing, um, which did not feel good. And then I heard this and I'm like, all right, I'm going to try this at least gives me something to try. Mm -hmm. So next time I see him, we go into their, their little rehab space at the sheriff's academy and I lay him, I actually laid him down prone on a bench so I could kind of support that thigh. And I rigged up the cable system to, you know, tie off onto his foot. And I was like, all right, just kick and see if you can extend. And sure enough, I mean, immediately he was able to produce enough force to move 40 pounds or so, which he couldn't fully extend 20 pounds like to 45 degrees in a seated position. So it was a yeah. huge difference in his ability to produce force and fire that quad. And he was like, oh, my God, wow. How does that work? And I'm like, dude, I, I could try to explain it to you, but I, uh, it's, it's just let's just roll with the fact that it's working. And, yeah. and so we started training him that way um, and made a, made a very big difference with him. I don't, I don't think you need to do that with everyone, but if you have someone – where, like, for example, with him, he had passive extension, full passive extension, good infield, good flexion. You know, his knee feels tight to him because he has the sense that he's not, you know, he can't control that knee, right? So his yeah. nervous system's kind of giving him that sense. But his knee is not stiff at all. Um, so if you see that, um, knee not stiff, but just can't, like, even do a quad set, try extending that hip and getting some tension. Um, yeah. through that rectus and well, I, I love that, that dude that, that, that makes that, and that makes a ton of sense it's like y- you like you said you don't turn your brain off so when you're yeah. looking at these things like think about old school origin insertion points and how that muscle is working dynamically I'll tell you where you see this also you yeah. see this post-op BTB ACLs when they're doing walking lunges like that knee doesn't mm-hmm. have a problem when it's anterior hip is flexed you're using a ton of other stuff when you load that quad with the hip extended when it's behind you now all of a sudden their knee hurts and you got to figure out how to train in that position 
yeah. because they have to be strong enough to support it. I think that feeling of the knee feeling stiff or, or sensing that it's stiff comes from, listen, they're living on a, on a fake joint. We need those muscles to be supporting them, right? right. And if that quad is asleep, you better believe that's going to feel uncomfortable kind of yeah. around their knee um, or in yeah. the walking lunge. So. Yeah, and I, and I think too, uh, Yoni, just because you kind of stay on the ACL topic, you know, one of the things that's really popular right now, and, and, and it's true, is this arthrogenic muscle inhibition. Um, but I think you can make a real mistake thinking that, oh, this is a scenario where this person's brain is not allowing them to control that muscle. And you haven't looked at everything. So I think you just need, like, just throw this into your routine of, like, I'm going to check this box. And if I extend that hip and they're unable to produce force, well, then maybe it's more of like a brain thing or a nervous system thing. But if, but if you haven't checked that, you can't, you can't say it isn't. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. I think that can be a pretty easy mistake to make just because there's a lot of popularity with um, the AMI stuff and whatnot. So, and yeah, some cool work yeah, not- being done. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that's worthwhile. Okay, tell me about IPC. What is yeah. IPC? What should we know about it? Um, First of all, define it. IPC is ischemic preconditioning, and it has a very clear definition, which I think is something that gets um, mistaken a lot in the BFR world. Um, I, I hope that we're not responsible for some of that, but inevitably... <laughs> You know, we, we potentially are, um, but but if if someone says to me ischemic preconditioning, what that means is they are applying a cuff at full limb occlusion, so 100%, and it is inflated for five minutes. It's deflated for five minutes, and that's applied three to four rounds. So um, inflate five, deflate five, so like a one to one ratio. And totally uh, off when you say deflated. Completely deflated. Yeah. Okay. So full reperfusion. Um, the the technique was was discovered um, by some heart surgeons or cardiothoracic surgeons. I forget exactly like their profession, but basically they they kind of thought that that technique might technique might be protective for heart muscle. Um, and the reason that they were thinking that was because they're noticing that their patients. Their patients that had little miniature heart attacks leading up to a big heart attack seemed like they had less heart damage than the ones that just had a big heart attack out of nowhere. And so they thought that maybe those little mini heart attacks, those little miniature bouts of ischemia, provided some sort of protection. Um, and so they, they studied that. And sure enough, they, they found like, oh, you know, if, if it's applied actually to the, the artery where the heart attack is going to be, be given then it provides a ton of protection. And so it gives you a lot of time in there to intervene, to restore blood flow, if you will. Um, What we've seen over time is people have continued to kind of research that technique um, and look at all kinds of different tissues, from brain tissue to other organs, um, in terms of just the ability of that technique to provide some protection. and then over time, we started seeing it work its way into being used to enhance performance in things like swimming trials and cycling trials and that sort of thing um, to, to now probably the newer area that it's being used is more of like a recovery type modality. So maybe in place of like a Normatec or something like that, um, it's actually been shown to reduce the amount of creatine kinase that's released. Um, to reduce the amount of delayed onset muscle soreness from uh, a, a task and to allow the restoration of force production to happen much faster. So um, we're seeing it used, you know, especially like in football where there's this really intense event once a week mm-hmm. um, and, you know, like after a game, getting on the cuffs, running through an ischemic preconditioning protocol. Um, and you know, if, if you've ever done it, especially on the legs, it just, you get this kind of refreshed sort of feeling in your legs. I think people typically kind of call that a flush, if mm-hmm. you will, is what's probably the most common terminology that you would hear. Um, I, to me, it just, like, it feels like you wet your leg. 
when it, when it deflates. Like it's like, did, amazing, I just, huh? did I just win my leg? I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, yeah. But but yeah, no, that's that's ischemic preconditioning in a preconditioning and, in a nutshell. And does it does it have a place in our rehab center? I think it's a fantastic question, um, and I actually started to answer that, and I, I kind of forgot while I was describing it. Um, not much of one, in my opinion. Um, I you know it depends. I think it depends on your your clinic setup and who you, who you tend to work with. But I like in a like a traditional outpatient setting that I came from, I didn't really use it. Uh, now I say that, um, and I think that the well I know that an emerging area of its use is actually in like neuro rehab, ne- neurologic rehab, like after stroke um, or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, there are some potential like nervous tissue preservation um, uh, effects that can be realized, and then maybe even like some motor learning aspects to that. And so that's kind of the the, the forefront, if you will, um, in that area. And then kind of going the other direction, um, there's a curiosity that I have that is um, has not been investigated, but, uh, but I have Todd Davenport at University of Pacific. He is starting to look into this. Um, he works a lot with people that have chronic fatigue. And one of the problems with persons that have chronic fatigue is their autonomic nervous system kind of freaks out when they do anything sort of active. And, you know, what we know is that exercise doesn't work. But the question is, could we maybe alter that metabol reflex with um, the application of a cuff and a release? And there is a study in healthy individuals that has shown that that is a thing. So, um, so we'll, we'll see, you know, from their work, if there's any maybe promise there. Well, then, my, my head goes to um, fifth inning, like sending Dean Kramer off the field and let him put cuffs on and sit there while the Orioles rally, right? Let him go through this IPC, and now all of a sudden he's able to get back out refreshed and his velo stays up or, you know, his accuracy stays up, whatever it is. That's, that's where my head goes. Be honest with you, I hadn't thought of that, but I think it's a great thought. I, I you know, this is why. So this is why I get frustrated sometimes. When people are like, "Oh, I took that class. I know how to do that." And I'm like, "Dude, I learn something new all the time. Like just now, I think that's a great application. Like we typically see it used on pitchers when they're done for the day. Right. But like you said, why not go? Like I mean." We all know a, a starting pitcher, their legs is what wears out a lot of times. You know, I mean, if you think back, like I grew up watching Nolan Ryan pitch in Houston, um, and then later down the road, uh, Roger Clemens and Andy Pettit, and you know, those guys, even though they were popping like growth hormone and whatever the hell else, uh, yep. <laughs> they yep. still would complain about might, their legs. Might have you know, had a yeah, yeah, they, they might have factored in. Might've. You know, yeah, just like the Astros might have been banging on trash cans, maybe. Eh, maybe. maybe. But maybe. Uh, <laughs> Maybe not, um, but, but yeah, I feel like that would work, right? No, I, I think it makes a ton of sense, honestly. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's it's just very interesting. I think, like, in our clinic, uh, unfortunately, like reimbursement also pops to mind. But when you're working with high level right. athletes, so much of this is education. I mean, if if they're already going home and putting the boots on, and and you can educate around, maybe there's something better we can do here. Um, whether it be lower extremity or upper extremity, but the concept of IPC. Now, I've heard you talk about performance enhancement immediately following IPC. Anything, yeah. anything there that's worthwhile? Yeah, yeah. I think, again, it kind of depends on um, what sport you're talking about. So, um, like, performance enhancement, probably the sports that you'll see that really matter the most in would be, like, um, um, a swimming effort or maybe a track and field effort or something like that. Um, and, it, and it needs to be like a maximal kind of effort. So like if you're talking about some kind of like sub-max long distance run, um, yeah. you may not really see anything, but like an all-out kind of sprint, maybe like a 400-meter sprint, um, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Or, or shoot, a mile is basically a sprint at this point. Right. Um, you know, yeah, those those, those types of um, uh, activities, it looks like there's something there. I, the only the only kind of caveat is it does look like 
we're might, we might have like some people that really do respond to this and others that don't. Mm-hmm. Um, it's never really a huge negative in terms of the response, but there's just some that just don't and maybe even get like a little bit worse. So, dude, that yeah, but that's what spring yeah. training and that's when you figure it out. Is for. That's exactly. when you figure it out. Got to figure um, it out. Oh, I love it. Okay, so let me let me conclude with with a lightning round. You ready? Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Quick answers um, as they pop in your head. Okay. The best book you've read in the last five years and why? Oh God. <laughs> Quick answers. <laughs> I don't know that I've read a book in the last. I five don't believe years. that for a second, guys. I'm, I'm not a book reader. Funny enough. Oh. Uh, I'll go thinking fast and slow because it's sitting right here on my desk. Um, that's a See great. That? I at least started the book. I don't think I finished. Love it. it. Yeah, I love it. Um, I like okay, um, where is physical therapy in ten years? Ooh, um, realistic or what I? Realistic. That's what this pod's about, man. You're talking to sports <sighs> PTs, and my mission is to bring them real answers, not stuff that realistic. Lives in uh, I think probably about where we are right now. Ugh, that is so depressing. I know. That is depressing. That's why I asked, realistic or not. <laughs> yeah. I, what am I trying to push PT to? Tell me. Um, the, uh, I, I would say, frontline orthopedic care. Love it. You have an acre of pain, you go to see a physical therapist. Um, and it's Australia. Dude, that's Australia. Yeah. That's the way it works I, there. I, that's, I think that's what we should be. Yeah. Um, why are we but, not there? Why are we not there? The mm, American Medical Association? That's, that's part of it for sure. Um, they, they definitely are a barrier. I mean, just like, Texas just now got, I think, direct access just recently. It's insane. Because it's, it, it's our healthcare system isn't about um, what is evidence based and what is best for the patient. That's not what our healthcare system is about, it's about who has the money and the power. Yeah. Um, we see that because we because we already talked about it. insurance companies. You know, yep. Uh, yep. I mean, they have the money and the power, and the physicians have the money and the power, and that's how our healthcare system works, unfortunately. So, oh, but yeah, it's broken. I, I, but, I think but, we should be frontline. Yeah, I, I agree with you. My my pushback to that is, man, is it easy to find information now compared to when I got out of school? Yeah, and obviously you got to be discerning you got to get good information know how to apply it but at least it's there True. and that should make us way better clinicians um just that learning curve should decrease now can we turn that into patients getting better faster and insurance companies giving a damn uh it's up to you kyle i don't know yeah <laughs> i don't know i'll put yeah. that on your shoulders I, I, um, yeah okay goodbye <laughs> Let me know um what one piece of advice to the busy ass PT just trying to keep up in a high volume clinic. Um, carve out a day in the week that you don't do PT. Make good answer. Set good off a answer. day. Set yeah. off a day. You get a I love day it. every week. Yeah, I love that. If you'll do I'm that, like, I think you can oh. grind it. I think you can grind it hard. Yeah, but, and, and yeah. I think you're, they're also far more productive, right? You give yourself that day, that respite. The yeah. rest of the week is far more productive. Um, that's very mindful of you. Yeah. Um, how can all the awesome sports PTs that are listening to this pod, how can they find you and how can they learn from you? So um, Twitter and Instagram are probably the two best places in terms of social media. Um, my Twitter is at Kyle Kimbrell one and then my Instagram is at Kyle Kimbrell because I was actually the first Kyle Kimbrell. I don't know. <laughs> I guess that's what it is. I love it. You know what's funny is on Twitter, I found the f- at Kyle Kimbrell and I'm like, and? I should be friends with this guy. And so I like friended him, messaged him. Dude totally no ghosted response. me. No response. I'm like, what an asshole. You know? Maybe maybe he got the same thing from Kyle Kimbrell too. And three. Yeah, I guess maybe so. Maybe he's just sick of it. You know, he thought I just wanted his handle. Uh, um, another Kyle Kimbrell. I know. Um, I I love it. I like uh I learned a ton during this pod. So awesome. thank you so much for yeah, yeah my opening pleasure. my eyes and, and hopefully the audience's eyes. We gotta get you on again. I thought this was just really great. So Thanks, Thanks for, for having me. It was a fun chat. I love it. Yeah, I love yeah. I love like minded people, people that are passionate, people that give a damn, like Jimmy McKay says. You know, that's I think that's what we need more of, and that's how we move the profession forward for sure. So, 
Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Get passionate. Awesome. Kyle, thank you so much. Thanks, Yoni. Appreciate it, man. Just a quick note to everyone listening. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to share this pod. Uh, It's been really exciting to see it grow Um, as our listenership grows and really communication grows. You can always reach out to us. True Sports PT on Instagram with a DM is the best way Uh, with either questions, comments, concerns. Tell me who you want to hear from in the field of sports and sports physical therapy. Uh, And just tell me how we can do it better. Always interested in feedback. We're going to be launching our ACL course. And it's really where the rubber meets the road and truly how we rehab ACL um, at True Sports Physical Therapy. So look forward to sharing all the specifics with you about that and as always we're looking to add to our team we're growing like crazy uh we're now in maryland pennsylvania and delaware we're looking for passionate motivated sports physical therapists uh just shoot me a dm again true sports pt just let me know what you want to hear and if you want to join us thanks guys